love being led in worship by our students. Um, being the middle school director and seeing a lot of middle schoolers over here makes my heart so happy. Um, I'm gonna pray for us before I officially get started, but um, God, I thank you for today. I thank you for a day that we are reminded not only of love, um, but also of you being our creator and us being the created ones. Um, would you speak through me this evening, Holy Spirit? Would these words be from you and not from, from me? Um, and would you give us soft hearts to hear what you would have to say to us through um, your word and through worship this evening? Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well. Hello, my name is Shania. If you don't know me, I am the middle school director here at Bell Prez. Um, and something you might not know about me is that I did not grow up in a very like liturgical church or a church that um, really practiced things like Ash Wednesday. Um, we pretty much just practiced Christmas, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, you know, the works. Um, I had no idea what Ash Wednesday really was until I started here two and a half years ago. Uh, so that was a wake up call for me. Um, but the story of Ash Wednesday is one that I am deeply connected to. Today is a day where we focus on our mortality. We focus on the fact that we are creatures, not the creator. We focus on how finite our lives are, that from dust we came and to dust we shall return that we have a deep need for a savior. All these things are super, super exciting, right? Can I get an amen? <laughs> I, I didn't grow up in the church necessarily. I started attending with my best friend in middle school and I never really stopped going. So and now I'm here. So it's worked out for me. Um, I was the textbook case of hurt people hurt people. And I had, a, like, I had every worldly justification to be mad and bitter and hurting. And if you asked 13-year-old Shania if her anger was justified, she would have given a resounding absolutely. My whole life had seemingly fallen apart. My mom had struggled with addiction for my entire life. And when I was 11, she passed away. That's a lot for any 11-year-old to handle. And um, I didn't do it so well. Not shocking. Um, so when I started going to church and I made the decision to follow Jesus when I was 14, I then started my lifelong journey of becoming more and more like him. And some days I'm pretty decent at it, but a lot of days I'm really not. Um, but I work in ministry, right? I'm the middle school director after all. Shouldn't I have this whole like Jesus thing figured out? Like, sure. But you know, I'm still a creature made from the dust that I will one day return to. In the Bible, there's another story about a guy that really seemed like he should have this whole God thing figured out. He was a prophet after all. His name was Jonah. It's easy for the story of Jonah to be relegated to a Sunday school classic, one that we all learn about in our childhood years, never to be spoken of again. But the story of Jonah is deep, and I encourage you to go home and read the whole book in one sitting and then read it again. It's four chapters, it's not very long. In fact, I'm gonna tell you the entire story tonight. It starts like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. 
Jonah's a prophet, and that simply means that he's the mouthpiece for God. He is tasked to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and Assyria had been a threat to Israel and Judah in the years before Jonah is commissioned by God to go to Nineveh. So naturally, Jonah goes to Nineveh, right? Well, not at first. Jonah runs in the opposite direction to Tarshish, pays for passage onto a ship at Joppa, and he's on his way. To be fair, I get why Jonah responds this way. Are we all familiar with Frozen? Everyone's familiar with the story of Frozen, okay. Um, you know, that guy, Hans, falls in love with Anna, they get engaged, you know, they finish each other's sandwiches, um, and then he turns out to be the bad guy. He just wants to take over Arendelle, right? Now imagine if at the end of the movie, everything's happy, and Elsa, with everything being right, says to Anna, actually, you need to let Hans stay in the kingdom. You need to let, you need to let Hans stay in Arendelle. That's what's gonna happen. That's kind of what God is asking Jonah to do. It's a little different, but you know, I would probably run away too. Back on the boat, uh, Jonah decides to go below deck to take a nap, and then God sends a storm to wake Jonah up. And the Gentile sailors, Gentile just means not Jewish, um, they start to cry out to their own gods, right? They're all from different faiths. They're not of the Jewish faith. They don't, they don't worship the one God like Jonah does. Um, and then finally, they're like throwing cargo off the ship, and the captain is like, maybe I should go wake Jonah up. So he goes down, he wakes up Jonah, and the sailors start speculating. They're like, who's responsible for this? Why might this have happened? And Jonah kind of owns up to it once he gets up there. And he answers in verse nine, he says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Yeah, he does worship that God, and he's also trying to run away from him. So the, sta the sailors start to ask him what he's done and how they might appease Jonah's God as the seas get rougher and rougher. So Jonah's bright idea is for the sailors to throw him overboard. And so in verse 13, like the sailors aren't very excited about this. They're like, we don't really wanna murder you. Not really about that. Um, and so it says, instead, the men did their best to row back to land but they couldn't, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. The sailors repent and turn toward God, and Jonah, well, Jonah succeeds in getting out of preaching to Nineveh. Doesn't that seem a little backward? Jonah's the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, the one who is the, the God that made the sea and the dry land. The sailors demonstrate more faith in God in that moment than Jonah does. Seems backwards, but this isn't where it ends for Jonah because God provides a big fish that swallows Jonah. And Jonah stays there for three days and three nights. 
There's probably nothing better to do in the belly of a very large fish um, that should ultimately be your demise than praying. And so Jonah prays. He prays this really long prayer telling God how great he is and how God brought him up from the pit and like how wonderful and strong God is. And at the end, he says this, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice, or yeah, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Amen. So Jonah's finally on board. Jonah promises to do what God asks of him, and then the fish vomits him up on the land. Cute. Um, In chapter three, we see that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. It says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took about three days to go through it, and Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, what sackcloth? Really, what is it? Um, It was a rough cloth made from the long hair of black goats and was worn in the ancient Near East to demonstrate mourning and public protest. Nineveh hears the word of the Lord through Jonah and immediately responds. Isn't that what Jonah was supposed to do? So in verse six, we see, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And he said, this is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The king of Nineveh responds in a way of humility. He decrees a communal fast and a time of repentance. He recognizes his creator. This response from all of Nineveh actually looks a lot like early Ash Wednesday practices. The early church would put on sackcloth, similar to what we would call burlap, um, and ashes, and they would repent and fast until they joined together again on Maundy Thursday to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's also the season of Lent. It kind of sounds like it, right? You would think that a prophet of God would be overjoyed at the work, um, at the work the Lord did in Nineveh. You would think that Jonah would be grateful for the role he got to play in this whole city repenting and turning to the Lord. But Jonah responds in the most opposite way. In chapter four, it says this. But Jonah, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He starts to pray to God and rant to him about his compassion. 
He essentially throws a big fit because God was full of mercy and full of compassion and love to this group of people that Jonah considered his enemies and enemies to God. By Jonah's standards, Nineveh did not deserve God's love. Jonah even goes as far as saying to God that he wishes he were dead because he was so angry. God's response to Jonah is simply a question. Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah doesn't respond and instead he goes out to a place east of the city, builds himself a shelter, sits on the ground and waits to see what happens to the city. He's, he's ready for the drama, honestly. And it really seems a lot like pouting to me. It's like a big two-year-old fit meets like a teenager, like I hate you, I wish I were dead, like kind of, kind of feel. And God provides a plant to give Jonah shade. But when the sun sets, God also sends a worm to chew up the plant so that it dies and it withers. And I love this thing about God, right? Even when Jonah is like so mad at him and just throwing a fit, God's like, I'm still gonna be nice to you. Like I'm still gonna give you this thing to keep you safe and like comfortable. But the next day, when the sun rises, there's a scorching wind and there's no longer a plant to provide shade. And Jonah, again, is like, I wanna die. And he proclaims that it would be better if he were dead. God asks him again if it's right for him to be angry about this plant. And Jonah doubles down and says, it is, and that he's so angry that he wishes he were dead. Jonah cannot bear to live with the idea that God might love someone that Jonah deemed unlovable. We do this too, don't we? We get angry that someone who seemingly doesn't work as hard as us gets a promotion and we don't. We get mad about that one person that uh, never studies for their tests and never does their homework but always gets an A on the test and we do our homework all the time and we don't have as good of grades as them. We categorize groups of people as more deserving of love or justice than others. And we judge other Christians for not being as Christian as we want them to be or for being too Christian for our liking. And look at how God responds to Jonah. And maybe this is how he's responding to us too. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? God demonstrates here to a Hebrew man, a member of God's chosen nation, that his heart is bigger than imagined. That God cares for and loves his entire creation. And that's how it ends. We don't get a happy ending, we don't get a fade to black and the credits roll. We're left to sit with God's question to Jonah, God's question to us. Should God not have concern for the people and places that we deem unworthy? The kingdom of God is offensively inclusive. The kingdom of God is offensively inclusive. My friend and former high school pastor, who's now the current lead pastor of the church that I came to faith in, his name is Nate Edmondson, said this in one of his sermons before I came here. He said, the kingdom of God is offensively inclusive and the kingdom of God is offensively exclusive. Well, he actually said the gospel, but like, they're one and the same. 
in this case right here. Um, so we're gonna act like he said the kingdom of God, okay? Um, <laughs> what do we mean by all this like inclusive and exclusive business? I'm gonna tell you. The God of the universe, the God of heaven, the one who made the seas and the dry land, the one who breathed into dust and created humanity, the one who came to earth in the form of a dust-formed human named Jesus, extends an invitation to anyone who turns away from their previous ways and turns toward him. It's a word we call repentance. And if they believe in faith that he is who he says he is, that he died and was raised from the dead and is coming back to put the world to rights, this God extends an invitation to each and every one of us. We're undeserving of it, but he extends this invitation into his kingdom. Whether we have done the right thing our entire lives or we've done a lot of the wrong thing for a lot of our lives, the invitation is always there. But the exclusive thing is that we have to accept the invitation. Paul in his letter to the Romans in chapter two calls out the Romans for judging one another. Classic. He says, when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt or hatred for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance or tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? As followers of Jesus, we have a daily invitation to participate in the offensively inclusive kingdom. A daily invitation. So my question for you and for me this Lenten season and beyond, do you wanna be like Jonah or like Jesus? Spend some time praying between now and Good Friday, Lent, um, <laughs> examining your heart. Pray for God to reveal some of your Jonah tendencies and ask the Holy Spirit for help becoming more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the helper after all, and God is faithful to do it. So God, I thank you that you are faithful to form us into more of what you look like in this process called sanctification, becoming more like you, Jesus. God, if I said anything out of pocket tonight, would you use it for your glory or remove it from our minds? Um, and would we be mindful of who you are calling us to be, to bring your kingdom here on the east side and wherever in the world you call us to? Because that's our mission, that's our vision, that's what you're calling us to, God. We love you and we thank you for this reminder that we are the creature and you are the creator. And that is such good news. Amen.